Are you ready to manage your work and personal world better to live a fulfilling, productive life? Then you've come to the right place. Productivity Cast, the weekly show about all things productivity. Here are your hosts, Ray Sidney Smith and Augusto Pinaud with Francis Wade and Art Gelwicks. Welcome back, everybody, to Productivity Cast, the weekly show about all things personal productivity. I'm Ray Sidney Smith. And I'm Augusto Pinaud. And Welcome to Productivity Cast. Today, we are uh, bringing you a special episode as we are wont to do a few times per year. We interview people who we think are going to be useful to you out there in your productivity world. And today, we're going to be talking about a book called The Power Bible by William Petit III and Brendan Lemon. And we actually have Brendan Lemon with us. So just a little bit about the book so you have an understanding. Uh, I'm just reading here from the uh, Amazon description here. Uh, this is a quotation that James Altucher uh, you know, presents at the beginning of the description. It says, uh, quote, the core of the Power Bible is how to light the mastery and confidence in yourself at a deep internal level and using that confidence outwards to clearly see the various frames and agendas being used by the people around you. End quote. And so the, uh, the description moves on to say, to have power over another one must first have power over one's self. And so this is a, a book of teaching you how to uh, really assume that uh, interpersonal, individual, and societal control. And to do that, as I said, we have uh, Brendan Lemon here on the show. Brendan, from his website, is a comedian uh, from Detroit where he started performing regularly at the famous Comedy Castle at the age of 16. Two years later, he was filmed for the documentary Be Funny, which featured Christopher Titus and Mike Green. Uh, he moved to Paris in the summer of 2013 to both write and perform stand-up in both French and English. He returned to the U.S. and lived between Colorado and uh, Chicago and Illinois, performing and writing plays, as well as being featured on the TV show Sex Sent Me to the ER and the movie Do You Believe? Uh, he lives between Chicago and Detroit currently. And so welcome to Productivity Cast, Brendan. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Such a pleasure to have you join us today. We have a lot to ask you and, and to discuss about the Power Bible. Uh, but first, did I miss anything? No, Any you got it. I'm, uh, I think I would, the asterisk that I would say to update that bio from, from my website, I should probably go do it, is that I have since moved to New York, uh, but now I'm due to the pandemic in Austin, Texas. Uh, it's about the only place you can do comedy in the United States right now. So I'm Doing a lot of outdoor shows. As a New Yorker, uh, I'm I'm I was uh, raised in New York City. I'm a Brooklynite, and uh, but now I live in Pittsburgh. So uh, you're in, you're in my hometown, uh, or were yeah. in my hometown for a while, and now you're in Austin, uh, another of my favorite cities in the country. Austin's a really good city. It's really uh, and, cool. Pittsburgh is great, though. Pittsburgh, I, w I went to Pittsburgh, and I was like, this is a more functional Detroit. Yes, like, yes. <laughs> It's like the Midwestern vibe with a bunch of small towns mashed together. Uh, it's yeah, a really remarkable. All right there around the rivers, dude. It's great. It's yeah, very, exactly. very cool. I, I really down. like that description of functional Detroit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So let's get into uh, the Power Bible. Why did you sit down and decide that you were going to write a book about power? Where did that come from? Yeah, this is a good, this is a good question. So I, it should, I should back up and say that it, you know, the book came together because my co-author and I, William Petit III, uh, met in Chicago doing comedy. And uh, what's kind of funny about that is that we were not, when I first met him, I was like, I can't stand this guy. And <laughs> we did not, we did not get along at all. Like all good marriages, we started that way and then realized after getting to know each other a little bit more, we actually had a lot in common. And it wasn't just comedy. It was uh, a lot of our background 
was really similar. We came from very different places. I grew up in Metro Detroit in the Midwest from a what Sartre would call a petite bourgeoisie family. He came from a very bourgeoisie family. He was born in Britain, uh, raised in Hong Kong. His dad's from St. Louis. He's mixed race. He's got a very, I mean, Bill has a very, and he talks about it in the book, very diverse background. I have, I have a very, I think, white bread American background, but I think that our experiences growing up in my case, a shifting sort of post-colonial Detroit in his, in a, uh, in Hong Kong and all over caused us to reflect a lot on our sort of mutual alienation as like, as adolescents. And I know this is really going down the rabbit hole, but that's a long winded way of me saying that once I met him and when we realized what we had in common, we had a common story of trying to figure out who we were related to the world of uh, shifting sands that we kind of grew up on. And, uh, and what we began to realize when we talked a lot about it was that we had done a lot of work. We're both philosophers. He's a lawyer. I almost went to law school until I was literally talked out of it by everyone in my life. <laughs> and and I, literally everybody I talked to would say that I, I had a, I have a degree in philosophy, which I joke is a degree in asking really good questions. Like what's the meaning of life and do you have any change? It basically allowed us, I think, to see how we needed to, at a fundamental level growing up, go inside of ourselves and kind of pick apart our feelings and how our feelings created beliefs and how those beliefs influenced our identity and our person and how we worked our way out in the world. And going through that process, we developed a similar philosophy. And we realized as we talked about it more and more, we really had something to create. And I think that the Power Bible uh, was finally created because we wanted to produce something. We had something to share and we wanted to produce a book that we wish we had when we started this process out. We, we wanted something that somebody could take and really try to understand, how do I get what I want in life? How do I win conversations that matter? And winning conversations that matter isn't just tactics that happen in a negotiation or interpersonally. It also happens inside of yourself. The first conversation you have to win is with yourself. And that's what we realized I think was missing from a lot of books that we had read on this subject. And that's what we wanted to create with the Power Bible. That's a very long-winded way of answering your question. That was one of the things that as I progressed in the reading was exciting for me because I, I obviously didn't know what to expect when, when I begin the book. But one of the things I found when, when we talk about power is the power towards the others and how we are going to control that. And that is all what it is, but if you don't control to your, yourself, if you don't learn how to do it inside first, then the outside, it's not real. So that was, as I begin progress into the book, one of the things that got me into it and got me more interested, and we'll get to my questions that I have in a bit, was that part of how you, it is in a way more about what you're, yeah, it talks about a little bit about the others, but it's really more about how you are going to use the tools and the framework to apply it to yourself. And that was really exciting for me. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that because I think, you know, I mean, there's, I guess there's two things I want to say there. One is, you know, character matters. And I think that, you know, in the world we live in right now, especially in the last, I would say, five to six years, there's been a real movement towards, you know, just what pragmatically, what actions can I take to help me get my goal? And that's helpful. And those things are important. But 
you know, if we live in a world of small wins, we tend to miss the actions that could take you to a big win. And how do I get what I want out of my life is a question that's deeply internal. And it has to begin with that reflection. So a lot of the feedback we get on the book is people go, yeah, I bought this book because, you know, I bought Robert Greene's 48 Laws of Power. And I saw this book and Amazon, welcome surprise to me, is like, you might, you bought 48 Laws of Power, you might want the Power Bible. And people start reading it and they realize, oh, this is not like 48 Laws of Power. I mean, it is and it isn't. It's almost like this is the complementary other side of the conversation that Robert Greene started when he began talking about tactics that you can use to gain power. Ours is like, yeah, that's great. You could, there's a ladder you can climb and our book definitely has some of those tactics, but it's also like, where does the structure of this ladder even come from? And let's talk about that. Something that I, I'm glad ha- most readers, I think, are pleasantly surprised to learn. And the second thing I want to say just on this is I've been asked a lot in many, in, in, you know, in different interviews I've done for the book, why did a stand-up comedian write this book? And I think it's fascinating because when you're on stage, I can see you guys yeah, both laughing at this already. One of the things that I think is fascinating about this is that when you're a comedian is being in the business of frame control to an audience of people. And when you're on stage, character matters. You have to, the crowd needs to know that you believe what you're saying. They need to be led with the, the logical, the discursive logos of the message you're delivering, the pathetic or emotional message you're trying to deliver. That's how material resonates and it's when it lands. And when it goes wrong, it goes way wrong. If you're telling jokes and the audience isn't on board, you're done. Like you're, <laughs> they're, they're going to turn on you. So it's actually a really good arena for understanding frame control because you're testing this out, your character, who you are in front of an entire room full of strangers to see whether or not they buy into it. Before we move on, you you mentioned frame control and the concept of framing. So can you explain that for listeners who haven't yet read the book? This is maybe the first time they're being introduced to the Power Bible and the book itself. Uh, can you explain that just briefly for folks so they have an understanding about what you mean by frame and frame control? Yeah, absolutely. So frame control, the concept of framing comes from the field of neuro-linguistic programming, which is a sort of a, a science that I want to say, how do I want to say this? It's like hypnosis is sort of based on this idea or the field of hypnosis is it's almost like a study of how language interacts with the brain is what neuro-linguistic programming is. And hypnosis kind of comes out of that. That's not to, everybody listening is like, why is he talking about hypnosis? But the concept is hypnosis is someone is speaking past your pre-reflective mind, past your neocortex and speaking directly to your unconscious mind. That's where frame control occurs. It occurs in your unconscious mind. You can feel frames. You might not even be aware that they're affecting you. That's part of the reason we wrote this book is to go, look, you're living in a world of frames. And to explain what a frame is, it's the context in which the data or information occurs that gives it meaning. So what is, you know, in the, the example we use in the book, and I'll, I'll use it again here, is what is, a, what is a police officer? If I took away all of your cultural frames, a police officer is just a, a, a human being who is wearing typically a blue uniform and has a piece of brass on their chest. That's it. There's no, any authority that they're invested with are social environmental frames that have been enforced to say that when a police officer starts talking to you, their word has meaning. They have the the backing of the state behind them. Those are all frames. And, you know, much like they say in the matrix, you know, once you kind of learn this, you can understand some frames can be bent and some can be broken. That's basically what a frame is, but it's not just, I mean, that's a clear example, but it's not just that. You know, we can frame each other in conversation and any 
in any conversation in which more than one person is engaged, there are a number of frames moving around that conversation. You know, a, a, um, a just a good one from the United States, and this happens to be relevant to me because I'm, I'm single and dating here in Austin, Texas, is that there's an assumption in the United States that whenever um, uh, two people of the opposite sex are speaking, there's some romantic component. That's not true in Europe in the same way. That's not true in, in the same way that it is in the United States. And that's a cultural frame that's unspoken but enforced socially. And so one of the things that people have to do in the United States in order to re- relieve that subtle tension is to mention early in a conversation like, oh, I have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or my, my boyfriend or girlfriend said this thing or that thing in order to insert that information and change the frame by saying, this is not a romantic conversation. I'm just letting you know that right now. That's what a frame looks like, is that there's a subtext moving underneath the actual discursive information at the surface of the conversation. You have to apply a declarative statement in the in the environment in order for people to, to, to basically disregard this implied environment underneath it. All the implications that kind of sit behind anything. If you take a photograph, look at any photograph, it's a frame. It's something that yes. has experienced and there's lots of things going on. The person could be smiling because there's uh, someone making fun of them behind the cameraman, right? You don't know those things. And so those are the implied components that we, we look at it. And if we take away all those implied components, then we just see what is as opposed to what yeah. could be. Yes, that's correct. And, and, and you know, if you, if you believe philosophers like Savoy Zizek, it's actually almost impossible to, to get out of the idea to see the object in itself. It's, it's very difficult. And you have to, you know, almost uh, you have to, you have to, exp- you know, your brain does this spontaneously. I just want the listeners to understand this. Your brain does this spontaneously. And it's, it takes more energy for you to step outside and go, okay, what is really happening here to figure that out? And what we've tried to do in the Power Bible is give a toolbox that allows the reader to just to use the 48 Laws of Power as a jumping off point again, is to go, okay, Robert Greene saw these 48 Laws of Power, but why do they work? And we've tried to give the the, the reader a toolbox to understand, okay, now I can start seeing the unspoken subtext to why these tactics work socially. And, you know, we spend a lot of time in the Power Bible talking about that and probably half the book. And once you're able to see these sort of unspoken, deeper parts of the matrix, you can begin making choices with a lot more freedom than you had previously. And that that's the concept of power. That is the concept of power that we want the reader to take away from the power bible right taking these these involuntary mental processes and making you more aware of them by bringing them from unconscious involuntary to conscious and voluntary which is kind yes, of that's important ex- that's exactly right. right yeah you nailed it right so there was a couple of things that are interesting for me i understood the concept of framing really quick I was born and raised in a different country. Spanish is my first language. I moved to the United States when I was 25 to learn English. So, so as you said, I got into this country with no frames. I mean, or any, I, I couldn't speak the language. I couldn't said, let me go to the restroom. Okay, that, that was not a possibility for me other than signaling. That allows me to analyze things on a different way than the person who has been living on a certain unconscious frame. I, I mean, it give me a lot more clarity when you said, okay, I'm a comedian, that it's forced to change into those two frames. The, the, 
the reality frame, what people is understanding as you're telling the joke. And then for me, because if you don't speak the language, you can do comedy. And it was really frustrating, you know, to when I moved to this country and I watch all these comedies and people laugh around me and I'm like, uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> and for a person who learned a second language or a third language, the moment you start getting those subtleties, those switches on, on frames for using the terms of the book, it is, it is really awesome that, okay, now I can really move into this. That said, that's an experience for a person who had, you know, the ability like you, hey, I start on comedy. So, or I went and learned the second language and all this. But when I was reading, one of the big questions that I, that came to me often and, and maybe because, you know, the guy who had a hammer, see nails everywhere. Okay. As a coach, I see, okay, how can I help the people who work with me to see this, to implement this easier? That was something that I, it comes from a second book or a workbook, but I will love for, okay. As you said, you spent a lot of, you guys spent a lot of time on the book explaining the concept. Now how a normal human being can go and really get into the dips of that implementation because I think it is not a, oh, I'm going to make this change and it's done. I think the more mm -hmm. you look into it, the deeper it gets and the more challenging it's going to get to. I think uh, there's two things I want to, yeah, there's a couple things I want to respond to in that, uh, first of all, which is that you're exactly right that I think a lot of, you know, for me, for Bill, I think a lot of things that he realized, which led us to write the book was from his childhood that he moved from, he was Britain, Hong Kong, Houston, Texas, I was Midwest, but I, as an adult, moved to France more than one time. And uh, the, the cultural differences, I think, were really stark to me in exactly the way that you're describing. Trying to do comedy in another country is, is like, I mean, it's, I, I can't think of, it's like trying, it's like going to try to swim in water to swim in like jello or something. Like it's a completely different material that you're trying to, the movements might be the same, but like none of the locomotion is, is working. Um, so one of the things, so you were saying what, what, you know, how can we take this and sort of apply it to our lives? I think that part of, part of it is, I think, deconstruction, um, uh, which is, I think nothing new in the, in the world of philosophy, but, but we have a lot of what we call rituals in the book activities that the reader can do to learn more about themselves, to kind of go outside themselves, to, to ask themselves questions in a way that. That maybe haven't been asked before to them about their own experience. And in the second half of the book, we give a lot of recommendations for sort of tactics that people can use specifically interpersonally. You know, one of the revelations I think that we have, Bill and I both had that, that we wanted to put in the book was the idea that most of the time, many of the problems that we think we have in our life are due to large forces that are outside of our control. But in reality, are either interpersonal problems between us and another person or between us and ourselves. And if we're able to show that and have a handful of different tactics like we have in the book, such as labeling, which is a very powerful tactic, zooming in or zooming out, a couple of tactics in terms of frame control, which I can explain. That's kind of all you need. You really only need a handful of those tactics to overcome most issues that you have sort of in your life. And the problem is just recognizing the issue. And that's why a big part of the book is devoted to that part. And the exercises that we suggest in terms of rituals at the end of many of the parts of, uh, of the book are meant to help expose those, you know, what is the actual problem here? Is there even a problem here? 
you know, that I would say that's that's where we go in terms of where the rubber meets the road in, in helping people. Is it Jaden Malek, the French Moroccan comedian? He has a Netflix special and he does it in English, uh, you know, coming to the United States from, a, you know, French Moroccan, uh, yeah. you know, and, and that language. He, he really does it. He does it so well in, in understanding culture and the context and all of those pieces. It, it is such a I mean, I, I marveled by the fact that he can do that in another language so that you could go from the United States and go to France and do comedy there, especially since culture is different, the way in which they perceive comedy and all that just, it just hat tip yeah. to you. Cause that, that is yeah, just yeah. remarkable. He's uh, he's hilarious. I, I got to mention a couple others too is uh, sugar. Sammy, who is a Canadian comedian from Montreal. He's a trilingual. He does shows in English, French and Hindi cause he's Indian and is hilarious. The guy's a real talent. Also, Eddie Izzard, who does comedy now in English, French, and German. And the guy, I mean, he will do shows in Berlin and do all three languages in the same show, which is- which And is his German's not half bad. Uh, his no, German's not bad. I, I studied no, uh, German, so I, I but, he, but he's, uh, yeah, his German's not bad. So it's good, it's good. My German is terrible. I love German. I love speaking German. I think it's hilarious to speak German. I actually think it's a very- I think it's a very poetic and beautiful language, but if you think if your idea of poetry is like what is like speaking with marbles in your mouth or something, like I think it's a beautiful language. Das ist ein großes rotes Gebäude. Like yeah, it's a big red building. You nailed it. It's funny because you know our relationship with Germany and America is fraught by 20th century history, but I didn't realize how important both philosophically and also culturally the entire German experience was until I went over to Germany in 2013. And it's funny because I spent a lot of time in France. I know this is getting way outside of the point of the productivity cast, but I went there and I remember thinking I've spent so much time in France. Why haven't I never come over to Germany? It's clean. Everything runs on time. People are really nice. They drink beer at breakfast. Like, what am I, how did I not know? I, I have a, one more question because I, as I agree that you have a lot of exercises and, and things for, for a lot of people, you know, again, you, you come with it. If you allow me to say this, uh, you cheat on the sense that you went to, to, to be a philosopher. So, so making difficult questions, It's okay, you know, hey, we make difficult questions and difficult answers and have beer for breakfast, okay? But that's not everybody's, you know, for, for a lot of people, those that we call quote-unquote difficult questions are challenging and they have not asked them themselves. So from the reader perspective, some of them were challenging and, and challenging in the sense that for a lot of people reading that question, forgetting about answers, asking themselves the question, reading the question was like, eh, I don't know if I'm comfortable asking that question to myself. So I'm not because of the, and, and please don't, it's not the question is I work with, with, with clients who have not done those difficult questions, have not looked into, you know, those things. So, so those questions are completely out of their comfort zone. So If you were going to make one, what will be the first thing that you will tell people? Okay, if you're uncomfortable with this, with the, with the questions, with the exercise, do this. Is there anything mm. that you will, you know, because I think, and I could be wrong, but I think for 
for some people, you know, finding that initial question that will let them get their toes wet, okay, it's going to allow them to grow to the more challenges. There were some of them that were really interesting for me, okay, that I was like, oh, yes, I like this question, but that was me who loved those kind of things. That's probably you based on what you share. But but I also could see some of those questions on some people and say, let me push this book out there and I will not ask, I will don't feel comfortable with me asking myself that question, even if nobody ever is going to listen or read the answer. So what will you recommend to that person who is reading this, who is understanding the importance of the frame, but is completely out of their comfort zone? Let me just see if I can contextualize the question as you just asked it. Maybe you're like Augusto who's uh, taken a deep dive off of the diving board into the end of the pool that requires you to swim deeply in order to figure out what, what is working with you internally. The question might be, what, what can I do if I do not have the time, energy, resources, maybe even courage, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way, to dive into that area of the pool to explore what's going on in terms of the frames around my unconscious self in the world? That's a fair question. I think my easiest answer and what I coach people on is if you're going to do nothing else, please at least keep a journal of whatever happens to you during your day, keep a notebook with you. And if you notice something shift, if you go, this was one way and now it's another way and I don't know what happened. That is an opportunity to discover a frame that's acting in your life. You know, if you find yourself suddenly I was fine and now I'm really mad or I talked to this person and most of the time we encounter frames with that feeling. I don't know what happened. I started here and now I'm here and I don't know what happened in the middle of that. The point of this is to try to understand what's happening in the middle of that. And so if you're, if you're thinking, how do I become more productive? How do I, how do I win conversations that matter? It's to uncover the middle part, the unconscious middle part of that conversation that is, you know, if you, and let me give a specific example. So let's say you want to raise at work. Um, it, you know, and you, you keep wanting to approach this conversation with your, your boss or whoever is controlling your, your, you know, your, your pay, you, you know, or let's say you're an entrepreneur and you want to increase your, uh, whatever your rate is for the work that you do. Um, trying to understand the frames that are moving around that conversation is critically important. So is it that the value I provide the organization is based on how productive I am? Is it based on the output, the value of the output, how much of the output I'm getting? Is it, or is it based on, you don't want me to leave because I'm more value. The, the, the reason you're paying me is because you don't have to solve the problem of my absence. Like there's, there's a lot of reasons, and this is where the frame control part comes in, that you could, you could approach that conversation. There's a lot of reasons why, they, why they're paying you. I mean, some people, and I, I only learned this after I became a director. I mean, my day job, uh, you know, because unless you're Dave Chappelle, comedy doesn't really pay the bills. <laughs> my day job is in consulting with companies for sales. I coach sales teams and teach specifically people how to cold call and email and develop conversations that work. But a lot of the reason people will hire A players is because they just don't want them to play for team B. And I, that may not be too surprising to you guys or to people who are used to playing at a high level, but that's the reason you can demand a premium. Look, you got to pay me a lot of money or I'm going to go work for a competitor. That's just the fact. And 
that's a different conversation than going, my work is worth X, Y, Z to this company. Especially if you approach a conversation quarterly with your boss and you leave that conversation going, how come I'm still not getting a raise? That is an opportunity to start exploring using the, you know, the notebook method that I'm describing. That's something everybody can do. So you're describing interstitial journaling. Like what's the, what's the, okay, great. I'll I'll put a link to that in the show notes for folks. Interstitial journaling, I think is a great, is a great way to do it. I I specifically keep a tiny notebook on my person where I write down, if I notice, okay, something happened and I'm not sure how I got from point A to point B, that's something I'll write about. Here are all the facts. I mean, the, the, just to describe this to the listener, here's the data. It was this time, this day, here's who I was talking to. Here's what we talked about. And then when I realized something had changed, here's what changed, here's how I felt. That's the kind of investigation that's going to mm-hmm. s- uncover the, the missing middle frame of this uh, interaction. You know, as a person who began his life in sales and has been on one or two or more sales training, I never got a comedian. What happened when I went to those things years ago? Okay, they were serious and boring, most of them, if I may say. <laughs> Yeah. I, well, that's the thing is, I, you know, one of my previous to writing the Power Bible, a book that I wrote was called How to a Cold Call Like a Comedian. I just realized, you know, I did I did comedy for years. I've been in comedy for 20 years. And uh, at a certain point, uh, you know, comedy, like I said, doesn't really pay the bills. And I, I had to get a day job. And I realized, oh, my God, all these lessons from the world of stand up translate so powerfully in the world of sales. Things mm-hmm. that basic lessons that comedians understand people in the world of sales, you know, you're, I'm reading books on sales that have like the highest acclaim on Amazon. And you read the book and you're like, you know, a comedian who's been doing comedy for three weeks can tell you this. <laughs> like, it's, and yet in the world of sales, it's like, hey, you know what you should do? Gain rapport and be funny. Like, okay, I guess I, I, well, guess I should try that. Comedy is the is the ultimate kind of sales, right? You're selling people on a situation. You're bringing them into it. So Colin Quinn would say you have to sell an audience every 15 seconds. You got to sell them on the next joke every every 15 to 30 seconds. In the past life, the where I was a sales manager, that's not different really than when you are in this on the room selling to the person. You have I when I work with people on on that and I coach them, I always said you are if you do it good, you just buy yourself 30 more seconds, and if you don't pay attention. You're out. Yeah, I think that your your success, especially, I mean, productivity depends on sort of two, I guess, two two different concepts. In in my opinion, the first is getting the things that you want, and then second is getting those things done quickly. And I think that the Power Bible has sort of things to offer in both realms. The first is how do I get what we want? We're going to have to win conversations that matter. Some of those are going to be big. And understanding how my role in them is critical to understand how to get that thing that matters. And the second is, how can I convince somebody to want to accept my agenda? How can I, I, how can I get someone to, in fact, think that my agenda is their agenda? And frame control is critically important to that point. And if you get good at using some of the tactics we offer, like labeling or zooming in and zooming out or uh, pressure flipping etc. Those things can be used very quickly in conversation to get people to jump on board with your, with your agenda, uh, especially if you can get them to think it's their agenda. And, you know, I mean, I, I just I deal with this right now at my own job and without digressing is just that, you know, having conversations with superiors, you know, getting people with authority, especially seeing people with authority, which is a good part of the book is devoted to and getting those people 
on board with what you're doing is going to open a lot of doors really quickly. It's a lot faster in this world of sales. We say you start at the top of the pyramid and then you roll down. It's a lot faster to get to the, the top of the pyramid to the bottom than it is to go from the bottom of the pyramid to the top. So I would say that. And then just on a, you know, on a more philosophical level, I would say that the, you know, Socrates said uh, 2,600 years ago, and it, it hasn't really changed since that the appreciation of life is the exploration of the questioning. That's, that's what makes life worth living. And I think it's true. And I think that if you're someone who's thinking, I just want to know how this book is going to ABCDEFG get me from where I am to where I want to go. Sure. We got a bunch of tools in the book that are going to be for you. That'll help do that. But also there is a whole experience of who you are that this book will help you uncover. And not only will you get from A to Z faster doing the things you want to do, but you're going to actually learn a lot more about yourself and enjoy your life a lot more with some of the things that I think we talk about. And I, I don't, that's not me blowing smoke. I think, it, I think it's true. With that, thank you so much for joining us here on Productivity Cast, Brendan. I appreciate you guys having me, honestly. This is great. And, uh, and I would, you know, anytime you guys want me, want me back, we can, we can make jokes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think I would like that. I, I really appreciated your uh, perspective on this book and the uh, bringing philosophy to something as interesting as how we deal with our inner and outer forces on, in the world is just something that I think most people in the personal productivity space don't spend enough time understanding. And so we, we really appreciate your perspective in that regard. And so this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. That was Brendan Lemon, who is the co-author of the book, The Power Bible by Brendan Lemon and William Petit III. While we are at the end of our discussion, the conversation doesn't stop here. If you have a question or a comment that you'd like to leave for Brendan, feel free to head over to our episode page on productivitycast.net. They're on the podcast website at the bottom of the page. Feel free to leave a comment or question, and we'll be happy to read and respond to them there. In order to get to the podcast episode page quickly, just use the three-digit episode number. So this is episode 126. If you go to productivitycast.net forward slash 126, it'll take you right over there. And that works for all of the episodes that we've put out in the past. Also on each episode page, you'll find show notes. So if there's something that we discussed in the podcast, we've put links to those items there in the show notes. And we've also put together a text transcript that you can both read on the page. Just click that read more link, or you can download it. Click on the PDF download link below the read more link, and it will download a PDF to your device. If this is your first time with us, feel free to consider following us through your favorite podcast app. You can subscribe using the instructions from the subscribe tab on productivitycast.net. And if you've enjoyed listening to us for once, or if you've been listening for a while, feel free to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you can leave podcast reviews. Those ratings and reviews really help us grow our personal productivity listening community. And so thank you for doing that. If you have a topic about personal productivity you'd like us to discuss, feel free to head over to productivitycast.net forward slash contact. You can leave a voice recorded message or you can type us a message directly into the contact form and maybe we'll feature it on a future episode. I want to express my thanks to Augusta Pinaud for joining me here on Productivity Cast for this interview. You can learn more about him and his work by visiting productivitycast.net. I'm Ray Sidney Smith and on behalf of all of us here at Productivity Cast, here's to your productive life. That's it for this Productivity Cast, the weekly show about all things productivity, with your hosts, Ray Sidney Smith and Augusto Pinaud, with Francis Wade and Art Gelwicks.